Hey everybody. Uh, if you could, a few of you could do me a favor and type into the chat box, yes, if you can hear me. Going to attempt to use this microphone again today instead of my headset. So if you guys can hear me, if you could type in yes. Okay, Tonya, Jeff. Okay, so if you guys can hear me, the rest of you can. If uh, at any point, uh, one time I used this mic and halfway through it cut out, I don't know why. And uh, so just type into the questions box if my mic goes dead on you at any point, and I'll have to reset the uh, presentation. And you can just go to InventRight TV on YouTube, find it, click on it. We should be fine, though. It only happened once. Um, another little housekeeping thing, as I noticed on public, on the uh, on social media, it was showing 4 o'clock Pacific. But in here, it was showing, for some reason, 5.05 Pacific. I just changed that because we're always doing these at 4 Pacific. It'd be 5 Mountain, 6 Central, and 7 Eastern. I feel like I'm on TV or something. Um, TM, uh, no, this is not a scam. Uh, we, we coach and mentor inventors to license their products, and we're not an invention promotion company. Big difference there is we expect our students to do work. Invention promotion companies say, you don't have to do anything. Give me 12 grand. We'll do it all for you. And then a year later, you got nothing to show for it. Um, so we are definitely not a scam. So let's, uh, let's jump in. Um, and I want to give you a little bit of an overview. My name is Andrew Krause. And I co-founded EventRight with Stephen Key um, over 20 years ago, now 21 years. And we've been coaching and mentoring inventors to license their products for royalties ever since. So when you license your product for royalties, you're selling it to that company or renting or leasing it to that company. It's their money. It's their workforce. And it's their existing distribution. So you don't need to raise money. Um, they're going to invest their money because they have maybe 80 products, 50 products, whatever it is going to vary with each company. So they have unlimited money for a product that sells well. So you're tapping into their money. And then they already have sales, marketing, manufacturing, advertising. They have all those departments to sell the type of product they sell, whether it's a dog toy or a medical device or whatever else it is. So your product's just one more product in their product line, right? So that's a beautiful thing. And the, the hugest thing about licensing, the biggest benefit is existing distribution. If they're in 30,000 stores, boom, you're in 30,000 stores. So you're getting the money, the workforce and distribution all in one place. So people watch shows like Shark Tank. They get all excited. Do they get the money or don't get, get the money? And it makes for good TV. Don't get me wrong. But licensing is way more attractive because you get the money, the workforce and the distribution. They're not starting a company from scratch. And, you know, you're you're accountable to all these investors. And now you need to start a company with one product. Retailers don't like one products uh, companies. They like products with many. Um, they like companies with many products. So when you license to that big company, you are that big company that has 40 products, 50 products. So there's a huge benefit to that. If you try to venture it and sell it yourself, and you go to some big retailer, like, hey, you're underfunded, you got one product, they're not going to give you the time of day. So there's a few advantages of licensing. Um, let's just jump in and get going here. Um, we get this question like every single time, but I don't mind answering it really quickly. And, and by the way, type your first name if you can, so I don't read your handle. But this person's name is Anna Annie Bonnie. Um, hi, Andrew, can I license my idea to more than one company? We get this almost every single time. The answer is yes, as long as they're not stepping on each other's toes. If they're on the same exact shelf at Target with the same exact product, that doesn't make any sense. But maybe one distributes to a different geography, different version of the product, to a different market, then that can make sense. But most of the time, licensing it to one big company, you're going to be very happy with that. Okay. Uh, let's see, Matt. I don't know, Matt, if you're kind of answering your own question. Matt's saying, in your video about Smart IP, you say that I can file unlimited PPAs using Smart IP, but then underneath it, it says one application access is $99. It's unlimited if you're a student and only if you're a student. Yeah, you're, you're, you're correct. That is, that is correct. So if you're a student of ours, for those six months, you can file as many, you can write as many provisional patent applications as you like. The one-time use for 99 bucks is one time for one product. I think that if you just use it one time, 
you kind of got to kind of understand the format and you should be able to use the formatting as a bit of a template to write more PPAs in the future, uh, Matt. So I think you have an exclamation mark there. So I can't tell if you're happy or unhappy about that. Um, you wrote, you're the man. So I think that's a good thing. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you, Matt. Um, uh, Tonya says, can you give info on group sessions? I'm thinking about doing the six month session, but want to know what's involved. Yeah. The group coaching, the Academy is less expensive. It's 900 bucks as opposed to 3000 for the one-on-one coaching. Um, and it's twice a week. It's an hour on Tuesdays and an hour on Thursdays. And you have a Matt, one of our fantastic coaches in there on Tuesdays and our negotiation coach, Paul is in there on Thursdays. Um, you're in a group of 15, 20 other people, so you can't disclose the specifics of your invention. So that's one of its shortcomings. But at the same time, hearing people ask questions and hearing a coach give an answer, amazing. But it doesn't offer that same one-on-one where you can say anything one-on-one to your coach with our one-on-one program. Um, so you have to, you're a little limited in some of the things that you can say. So you could say you have a dog toy or a medical device, but you can't say this is what it is and share it with 20 other people in the group. So that's its shortcoming. But it can be very beneficial, especially if you're on a really tight budget. I find that most people, they really want the one-on-one coaching. That's what they really want. Um, but some people will settle for the academy. And I'm happy that we're able to offer something at a lower price point for people. Um, we do have a special now that we've never done before. Um, you can get two months of free coaching. Um, so normally the program is six months, but if you order before October 31st, you can get an extra two months, which we've never done before. We've done an extra one month, but never extra two. So you get eight months instead of six, but that's enough of that. I don't normally pitch our program on these sessions, but you guys asked. So that's why I'm answering. Um, let's see. Okay, TM's asking, what is this all about? TM, watch InventRight TV, watch our channel. You'll figure out what we're all about. So if you could take a look at that, would be great. It sounds like maybe you just stumbled across the live stream. Um, uh, William says, hi, Andrew. Would you mind clarifying the possible options for when the 12-month and the PPA runs out? In your experience, what is the most common outcome? Well, you know, people, we talk a lot about um, PPAs and pro called provisional patent applications. And they essentially let you file a provisional patent application for $70 and go fishing for an entire year to see if there's interest. But they don't really do you any good if you don't know how to reach out to companies. So people watch your show, they get the warm and fuzzies. Oh, I can get a provisional patent for 70 bucks. And you can, and you should. But if you file it and then you just sit on your hands and you don't approach any companies, what good is that? Now, on a positive side, if you did that, I always tell people not to freak out, to think that your 12 months run out and then you're screwed because that's totally not the case. If you haven't made public disclosure and showed your product publicly at a swap meet, on a public YouTube video, um, put up a website, you can file that same provisional again. Now, you won't get your original date from your original provisional, get a new date from the new provisional. And our students do that all the time, especially when they've filed a provisional and they come to us and they're like, oh, I only have two months left on my provisional. I'm just, just file it again. And so, uh, you know, could that get you in trouble? Possibly. And so everything tonight is not legal advice. Please receive the services of an attorney if you're looking for legal advice. Nothing tonight is legal advice. Um, so, but you can file that provisional again and you will lose that original date. But in the 20 years I've been telling students that they have that option. I've never seen that bite a student in the butt. Well, Andrew, I filed another provisional and then somebody else ended up filing and it messed me up. It could happen, never seen it happen. So what's the difference? Well, you can file a full utility if you want to keep that original date from your original provisional and spend eight to 20,000 on a patent because you're so worried that somebody may come up with something in that time period. Um, I don't think it's worth the financial risk to do that. So, um, you know, people get excited. They file provisionals. They don't make public disclosures. You can file it again. Now, if you made a public disclosure and it's been more than a year and you don't file a full utility, you're going to lose all your rights for whatever you publicly disclose. But privately showing it for licensed to companies, 
with the American Invents Act is not considered public disclosure. Okay. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, please consult your attorney. But a lot of them, what they do is they won't tell you you can file your provisional again. They'll say, well, you're going to lose your priority date. And they give you the impression, some patent attorneys, like, oh, I'm going to lose all my rights. And they leave out information that if you had to make public disclosure, you can file that same provisional again. Okay. You're going to lose that time period. But, you know, I've never met a patent attorney that's licensed anything. So, you know, they don't come at it from the same business perspective we do. So they're always about protection, protection, protection. And a lot of times it ends up you spend too much money and then you can't do it for your next invention. Your spouse is like, you're not spending another 20 grand on patents. Uh-uh. And now you're, you know, you're, you're not feeling good about the whole process. So why not just prevent yourself from making that mistake? Um, Jason says, should I send a sell sheet by submission portals and emails to big companies, for example, Unilever, All-Star, even though it states in their terms of service, there's no confidentiality element, they won't sign an NDA. You know, um, I can't give you legal advice, Jason, but I can say that we, we talk to our students all the time about the fact that if you filed your provisional patent application, that you should be comfortable with that we feel like our students are comfortable with that quite often. And again, that's not legal advice um, because, and then also you're creating a paper trail, what you showed them and when. So you filed a provisional patent, you created a paper trail. A lot of companies will not say we can agree to keep it confidential because they don't send it to anybody without them signing an NDA, but signing your NDA, which this is what happens. So let's say you send it to, a company and that company gets 150 ideas a month. If they have to review with their attorney, every NDA, the inventor sent, not their NDA, every NDA, they're going to need a full-time attorney just to review. You didn't put something in there that says that you own their, their company. If they sign this, it's not practical. So now sometimes their NDA will offer you a certain measure of protection. A lot of times it will say, look, this is means it's non-confidential. But, but they'll specify whatever rights you have and any intellectual property is yours, whatever we have is ours. So if you filed a provisional patent application, you're, you're, you're fine. So again, nothing we share because when we train our students, it's very in-depth and we go on into all these different scenarios. So nothing we share tonight should be constituted as legal advice or we'll seek the services of an attorney. But um, if you ask every company you approach to sign your non-disclosure agreement, believing it's some sort of iron kryptonite, iron man, Superman kryptonite protection. It's not. And don't expect it to be. Um, and most of our students are okay with filing a provisional patent and the paper trail they create. Um, uh, Delivery Girl said, not a scam. They're awesome and legit. Thank you, <laughs> Delivery Girl. Appreciate that. Um, uh, Jason says, which product categories would you would you say are easier to break into with licensing a product novelty kitchen in advance? So I would say uh, kitchen, home storage organization, novelty, all very easy to break into the and then a lot of, of categories are just somewhere in between. The brutal categories are um, products they sell bazillions of units of. So like, uh, for example, um, Band-Aids, diapers, you know, you add a half a cent to that, it can be too much, you know, for uh, to tolerate. Um, they're very price sensitive. They're selling bazillions of units. And you're saying, well, you should add this thing to the diaper and it's going to add 20 cents to each diaper. And they're like, I'm never going to do that. So with a packaging product like toothpaste tubes or packaging or products are selling bazillions of units of those are very, very difficult projects. We guide students through those types of projects all the time, but it's going to be a lot more difficult than a kitchen gadget or a novelty product or something like that. Um, so, you know, I, I think that any product, you know, there's certain categories where you see there's a lot of innovation happening. And then there's dinosaurs where you don't see much of all of any innovation happening. So there's this dinosaur industries you know, you might, they might not be getting a lot of ideas from inventors, but you might stick out and your product's not really that creative, but they don't see a lot of ideas. 
And they're like, wow, this is genius. And you're like, really? It's just a little slight tweak, you know? Um, but then you got to ask yourself, the question is, why are they a dinosaur industry? Why aren't they, have they made any change to these products in such a long time? Maybe they were very resistant to change. So going to a dinosaur industry where you're not seeing a lot of changes, um, they might think you're a genius for the change you make, or they might just be a little resistant to make any changes, um, especially really large companies. I don't think it's necessarily just the industry, uh, Jason. I think it's when you make your list of potential licensees and when we have people that come on board before they become students of ours, the list is always anemic. It's like two or three companies when it should be 20 or 30. So the coach can quite often help the student make it 20 or 30. But when you have the proper assistance and you did all your research the right way to find the list of companies and it's still only two or three companies, that's a lot harder because you only have two or three chances for success. If you have 20 or 30 companies, you have 20 or 30 chances for success. So I would say the industries in which you have only like two or three major players completely dominating. Now, a lot of times you guys think that's the case and it's totally not. You don't know how to make your list of companies. And I, when I was a coach, I help people all the time expand their list from two or three to 20 or 30. They just didn't know how to look at it. But when it truly is only two or three that completely dominate, and there are two or three mega corporations. They're just not that incentivized to change. Um, so those that I would say, Jason, that would be a more difficult area to get into. It's an industry where two or three companies completely dominate and there's just no other players. That's not very common, though. OK. Um, hey, Andrew. Uh, Bohemian Hill. I got, an, I got an idea. Can I give you my brief breakdown of what to do and what not to do? Oh, can you give me a good? Yeah, I, I, that's a little bit too general. I think I'll just answer questions, uh, Bohemian Hill. And, and by answering those questions, you'll get an idea of things to do and what not to do. I, I can't like break down the whole process. Um, let's see. Uh, Brandon says, number one question, what are the terms we should know when reading an agreement? Boy, there's a lot there. Well, you know, one thing I'm going to give you guys some big picture here. You shouldn't, in order to do a licensing deal, it's not, it's not like you get interest and then you get an agreement. It doesn't work like that. There's two stages that I like to explain it this way. There's two stages to a licensing agreement. There's initial interest to contract, and then contract to close. That initial interest to contract, way more important than the contract to close. Having an understanding of what is going to go into the contract so you can gather those deal points beforehand from initial interest to contract is key. And it's way more important than the contract itself. Potential licensees, marketing managers will share all sorts of stuff with you early on that they shouldn't be sharing with you when you properly know how to interview them. The big misperception I think people have when you get interest from a company is they'll tell you what to do. They won't tell you what to do. The deals will fizzle out almost every time if you sit around waiting for them to tell you what to do. You're partially answering their questions. And a big part of what our negotiation coach does and our coaches do with our students is to guide the individual, the marketing manager within the company to the direction that you need to take them. Because quite often they don't have a lot of experience doing licensing deals. Maybe the company's done eight deals, but this marketing manager you're talking to, they've never done a licensing deal, but they love your product. So you need to kind of guide them as to what they're going to do next. And it's not like you're being pushy and go, you're going to do this and do that. You're subtly like they're asking questions. You kind of half answer because you know that's not the direction you want to take the conversation. And you go over here and they're not even asking that question anymore. It's very um, particular. I can't summarize everything that you need to do to get a licensing deal together, but it's not... The contract isn't as important as you. Getting it to the contract is more important than the contract itself. That's the way I'll put it. Okay. Our negotiation coach will go through with a student. Usually we'll have the students have the company send their contract. Way better for Paul, our negotiation coach, to go through. Well, here's five things need to be fixed. And here's four things that are missing. And then we guide you to being very strategic as to how to go back to the company. And Paul might say, well, why don't we go back? They'll typically say yes to these three things. Let's go back to the company 
and hit them up with these three things. And, and then we'll hit them up with these more difficult things. It's very strategic, uh, very, very strategic. And, and it's very, very important. Um, let's see who else we got. Uh, the jazzy, the jazzy show. Uh, hi, Andrew. How do I form an LLC? How much does it cost? Um, how do I do it in the UK? I have no idea in the UK. Um, you don't, if you're in the UK, you probably don't need to do it. Um, they might have an equivalent. So, you know, we're, we're not saying you have to do an LLC or corporation before you do a deal. We're always advising our students to do an LLC or corporation when you do your first deal. And whatever the equivalent of that is in the UK, uh, Jazzy. So um, what I'll say is one of the reasons why we want our students to do an LC or a corporation when they do their first deal is for personal liability protection. But And I've, I've, I go over this every single Q&A, so sorry for you guys that have already heard this. But first of all, you're covered under their product liability insurance. So if somebody wants to sue you, you're going to be covered under the company's product liability insurance. Companies, users, consumers, if they fall and get hurt on your ladder invention, they don't even know you exist. They're going to sue the company, not you. But let's say they looked up the patent, and they saw you, and they wanted to sue you. You're covered under the company's product liability insurance. You don't have the deep pockets. They're probably not going to go after you. But if they did, which has never happened to us in our 20-year history, um, that you would also have an LLC or in a corporation, there wouldn't be anything in it. You just empty it out every month. And you could just, if somebody sued you and it was going to cost you much money, you could just let that entity go dead. And, and then you wouldn't. And so that's additional protection. Now, Jazzy, you're in the UK. So your additional protection is some American citizen, let's say they got hurt on your ladder invention. They're going to sue the big company, not you. Let's say they're really terrible and they're want to sue everybody. You know, they're going to see you're in the UK and go, I'm not going to mess with that. So your additional form of protection is the fact that you're in the UK and they're not going to want to bother to sue an individual and better doesn't have deep pockets in the UK. They're going to sue the company. Okay. Not you. Never, ever seen it happen once in 20 years. We've been doing this and we've had students in 65 countries. Just last month alone, we had 11 students close deals. So not something to really worry yourself about. You could look at different business entities in the UK, if you wanted to do that. I don't think they call it an LLC there. We have tons of students in the UK. Our students that close deal, they just kind of figure it out. I'm sure our negotiation coach would know what the options are there, but I don't. I don't. Um, uh, Matt says, I have a product that I'm working on that could have many different features incorporated into it. Should I start, the, start basic to get the market and then continue on with the product line extensions? Yeah, I would try to license the product that has the most, makes the most sense, Matt, for them to want to launch a whole product line. Don't overwhelm them with that. Give them the base product, like you said, uh, that makes most sense to license. And then, you know, as that product starts to sell well, you could introduce other variations to them, um, other line extensions. Also, it might be appropriate to bring it up. They might have some criticisms of the base product. Well, I have extensions you guys can get into later. You can show it to them at that point. But initially up front, I would just show them the base product. Don't overwhelm them. Like, I got this line of 20 products you got to launch. That's like, they're like, it's a lot to take on. Um, and if you do want to bring it up, I would show them the base product. And then, you know, things are kind of moving forward, pretty interested. Then you can show them what's possible later. Um, but you're not freaking them out. You've already made the connection and established some rapport. Um, uh, Jazzy also says, I'm okay. I'm in the UK. Do I only contact UK companies? Absolutely freaking not. Um, you should be contacting uh, UK companies, US companies, uh, Canadian companies, European companies. You should approach them all. To be honest with you, most of our students in Europe, they end up licensing to an American company. We get people doing deals with European companies that are really big in the U.S. They have a big U.S. presence. But to license to a company that has no U.S. presence, um, that's possible as well. But do not limit yourself to your geography. U.S. and Canadian companies are more open to licensing European companies. Our students do deals with European companies, but do not limit yourself to the U.K. by any means. Um, do not do that at all. 
and you are going to be more likely to license to a U.S. company. So don't go, well, I don't understand the market. You do the research. You see what the companies are in U.S. You license, you're more than likely going to license to a U.S. company or a very big European company that has great distribution in the U.S. But you're not going to limit yourself to the U.K. Heck no. And you're going to file a U.S. provisional just like all our U.K. students do and our students around the world. And you are at no disadvantage. Companies don't care where you're from. They don't care if you have an accent. They just care that you have a good product. So do not limit yourself to your own geography. Um, let's see. Sam says, please explain how copyright can protect a design idea like in the novelty area. Um, yeah, you can copyright your art, artwork. By, by default, when you give a speech, when you write something in an email, it's automatically copyrighted. It's copyrighted by default. And you can spend the mo extra money to send in the Library of Congress. If you're in novelty and you're very prolific, you could do the copyright on like 20 cell sheets or something like that. But, um, you know, and you can copyright things like rules because that's the written word. Um, you can copyright your artwork. But don't think it's going to be full on protection of your actual invention because you're just copyright because copyrights don't cover functionality and utility. Um, it, it, it's, it covers the written word. It covers artwork, things like that. So um, but people worry way too much about getting ripped off this whole protection thing. People worry way too much about it. Um, you but we believe in it. File a provisional patent. You know, in novelty, Zam, you know, people in novelty are very prolific and, you know, you make a relationship with a company. You might send them 10 ideas and they're rough sketches. One of our coaches, Courtney, is doing that right now. So when you get really uh, friendly with a company and you really know them and trust them, um, some people will forego the provisional patent because they don't want to spend 70 bucks on each one. But when you're new to the game, I would recommend always filing a provisional patent. And I'm really only saying that people will do that in novelty sometimes, and I'm not recommending you do that. And, you know, copyright is your protection. Um, so, but don't think copyright is the same as a provisional patent because it's not. Uh, uh, Jack says, when I file my PPA, is it okay to take a picture of of my looks like works like prototype along with trying absolutely a provisional pan. Um, there are no formal requirements. You could scribble on a piece of paper with crayon and turn it in. They would have to accept it providing you paid the fee and you um, have your address and you filled out all the forms properly. But as far as the provisional patent you're submitting you could scribble with crayon and they would accept it. Now, do you want to do that? Absolutely not. Um, it's nice, ultimately, to have some line drawings. They kind of look like patent drawings, but they're line drawings. That's nice. But formally, you can take pictures of your prototype, and you can include those in a provisional patent application. There are no formal requirements for filing a provisional patent application. A lot of people do that. The benefit of going the extra mile and doing what kind of looks like line drawings, maybe you pay a, you don't have to pay a patent drafter to do that. You just Because there are no formal requirements, but you, it looks kind of professional. Now, having lots of nice pictures, that can look professional too, but for a, for a marketing manager that's unskilled in patents, you know, they're like, oh, those are pictures. Oh, okay, that's interesting. They might not know what to make of that, but they see line drawings. They're like, oh, this is kind of like what I typically see in a patent. Um, so that can be an additional benefit. I don't think it would bite you in the butt if you just include pictures. Our students used to do that all the time. They still do that. Um, but if you want to kind of take it up a notch, an industry that's kind of a little extra difficult with wanting patents, um, having some line drawings could be nice. Um, Theresa, Teresa, how long does it typically take for one to go from idea to license using the program? It's all over the map. I mean, Teresa, some people license their first product. Some people license their second or third or fourth. And the only thing that we can do if you decide to become a student of ours, make sure you do and say everything right. And then it's up to the companies. It's up to you know your invention too. Some inventions are better than others. Um, but we can make sure you do and say everything right. And it, it can vary tremendously. Um, you know, the quickest we've ever had somebody get interest is like, well, we've had students get interest immediately. They send the sell sheet. First company shows interest. 
Other, other people, they show it to 30 companies, no responses from anybody for two months, and then somebody replies showing interest, and they end up licensing it to them. It's all over the map. Um, some people license their first, some people license their second or third product. That's why it's very important not to blow a ton of money on every product you work on. Sometimes people, they don't license the first product, but they know it has legs. They got a lot of non-specific no's. Oh, not at this time, not a right match. I always tell people, do not put that in the garbage can. Just put it in the closet. Six months later, sent to all the same people. We get st our students licensing stuff all the time that way. So, and you're probably like, well, why would that be, Andrew? They all said, no, why would you resubmit it? Well, they were busy. They had a lot of things going on. They replied to you, not at this time, not a right match, kind of generic answers, right? No specifics, and nobody gave you specifics. You couldn't get it out of people. So you're not done with that project. Now, five people say, it won't work because of this. And you're like, I can't fix that. You're done with that project. But if they didn't specifically say why it wouldn't work and you couldn't come up with a solution and you sent it six, eight months later and that same marketing manager before they were super busy, they're just people like us. And this next time you send it, two weeks earlier, their boss said, we need new products. And now that same person has said no is emailing you back with some questions about the product. It happens all the time. That is being a pro. These one, one trick, I'm going to do this invention. I never want to do this again. I do not want that person as a student because we're going to empower them with the skills to license products the rest of their life through getting real life experience. And they're, they're so obsessed with this one idea that, you know, no, I don't ever want to do this again. I make a million dollars off this thing overnight with no effort. I'm like, I don't want that person as a student. Um, I'm sure that's not most of you. Most of you are like, this is my one really important invention. But yeah, I come up with ideas all the time, Andrew. I want to know how to do this and keep doing this. Then you're a good candidate to be an InventRight student. Uh, uh, hi, Andrew. Can I get a PPA for a new drink or food product? Will I qualify for a PPA? It depends. If it has new functionality or utility, Jazzy, um, it depends. Now, here's the thing people trip out on. You can always get a PPA because they don't review it. It's always great. It's always you always earn the right to say patent pending on whatever you send. So even if your food product or your drink product wasn't patentable, you could file a PPA on it, put in there what you want to protect, and you can legally put patent pending. You don't have to put provisional patent pending. It gives you this, uh, it gives you perceived protection to move forward and talk to the companies. And, and it could be something that you know, or a patent attorney has told you, there's no way you're going to get claims on this. This isn't protectable with the utility patent. You can still file a provisional patent and try and say, this is what I want to get protection on for that perceived protection for 70 bucks. So um, let's see. So I, so I can't answer your question, Jazzy. It depends on the functionality utility of the food product. Um, sometimes the drink and food products are a little bit harder. Definitely. Um, See, Jack, I answered your question about taking pictures of your prototype to put in your provisional. You can absolutely do that. Um, uh, Brandon wants me to make a whole show just talking on licensing terms. Guys, I, I have to tell you that that's something that is very dicey. If I just made the terms, that would be one thing. But it, there's, a, there's a techniques for the negotiation that goes back and forth. And even with our students, we they need to have gone through that process once or twice to know how to then do it on their own. Um, you, you definitely need to have done that, got that experience, which is also one of the goals for our students. We want you to guys to be able to get deals to 95% done on your own, which is what we do with our negotiation coach. And then our negotiation coach will say, you just need a licensing attorney for an hour or two, dot the I's across the T's. So they haven't mucked up the deal, but they're looking over the final contract. We want our students to be able to get there on their own in the future, but you have to go through a deal or two with us to get that experience. It's not just a list of terms. You have to understand how to go back and forth in just the right way in different scenarios. And it varies tremendously. You get companies that have done 15 licensing deals and companies that have done none. You get companies that send licensing contracts. They say it's a licensing contract, but it's not. It's like this really messed up contract that their general counsel wrote. And it's like, this isn't even a licensing contract. And we don't care. As long as we can stuff all the important licensing terms in there, it's fine. Whatever you can do to make it move forward. But you get two attorneys, theirs and yours, button heads, deals will die very, very quickly that way. 
Uh, Jazzy said, hi, Andrew, can I get a one-on-one session every other week as I cannot afford the 3000 for the one-on-one you could do the, um, you could do the uh, Academy, uh, Jazzy, that's only $900. So you could do the Academy instead of the one-on-one. Um, but it's kind of an all or nothing thing. We get half of your help. You're on with the coach every single week. Um, there's no modification of that that we can do. We want to be there for you and on top of it. You know, I, I have to say that, you know, because we're meeting with a student every week and emailing in between, students will still get a few steps off the path, but the coach gives them right on, back on the path. And if we met other 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 week, I'd be worried that students would get too far off the path, make too many assumptions. So that's why we don't do like hourly consulting. Consulting is like a dirty word to me. Consulting means string people along for billable hours and make them dependent on you. Uh, mentoring and coaching is empower people, make sure they're doing everything right, doing and saying everything right, and empower them to do it themselves in the future and hold their hand through it all. And that's why I don't like people say, oh, do you guys do consulting? I'm like, no, what we do is not consulting. It's mentoring, it's coaching, it's teaching in the context of your real project, but don't ever call us a consultant. Because I think consultants um, get a bad rap for a reason. Because uh, they're always trying to make you dependent on them. We're the opposite of that. Uh, let's see. Uh, hi, this is from Valentino. Hi, Andrew. After reading One Simple Idea, Stephen advocates p- pitching to more mid-sized companies than large ones. What metric is used to determine the difference? Um, none, Valentino. I, I personally, I, I think that. You, don't, you shouldn't spend time analyzing if they're midsize or if they're small or if they're large. If they're in a major retailer where you want to be, they're big enough. Call them. That's the easy litmus test. If they're in a major retailer where you want to be, they met the litmus test for being big enough. Um, so don't overanalyze that. Stephen's making a good point there, and it's a relevant point, but do not analyze that. It's a waste of your time. They're in a major retailer where you want to be. I'll say it a third time. They're big enough. You should be reaching out to them. Okay. Don't analyze by how many employees they have, dollar figures they do. It's a waste of time. Um, okay, cool. Uh, Ray Ray is saying he purchased One Simple Idea and he thinks it's a fantastic book. So yeah, our book, One Simple Idea, you can Google that. Get it on eventright.com. There's a link to just go on Amazon, type in One Simple Idea. A lot of people really love our, our book. It's a yellow book. Great book. That's the one I'd recommend you guys read. I forget what it is. It's like 13, 15 bucks, something like that. Um, so uh, Shivaja, Shivaji, sorry, I'm mispronouncing your name. You're in Australia. How can I work on this? We have a ton of students in Australia. We're very, very popular in Australia. I think we actually have more students in Australia than even Canada. You think after U.S. would be Canada. I think uh, Canada and Australia are neck and neck. You do the same thing as our U.S. students. You file a U.S. provisional patent and you move forward. We have a ton of students in Australia. You do not, you're not limited by your geography, guys. And you definitely wouldn't want to limit yourself to Australia. Very big country, but not a lot of people. So you don't want to limit yourself into Australia. And if you're in Australia, you know this term. I've learned this from our Australian students. It's called the tall poppy syndrome, which means, oh, you're not big. You're not important. And so we don't want your ideas. And so there's still a little bit. There's definitely more of that with big companies in Australia than in the U.S. U.S. companies seem to be more open than anybody. They don't care you're a little inventor. They don't care. They just care about your idea. There's still a little bit of that tall poppy syndrome, which is, you know, you're a tall poppy. You know, who are you? Who do you think you are that you could talk to me, the big company? We'll just chop you down. And that's one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of our students closing deals in Australia. But Shivaji, you don't need to limit yourself to Australia. You're reaching out to U.S. companies as well. And I'm not saying you can't do an Australian licensing deal with an Australian company, but it's way less likely than with a U.S. company. I'm just telling you like it is because of that tall poppy syndrome. There's still a little bit in the culture. U.S. culture supports entrepreneurship and individuals can do anything kind of mentality. Um, And U.S. companies have that more than Australian companies. Um, Let's see. 
Chase said, I have several products that seem like they go well together. What are the benefits or downfalls of pitching multiple products as a set rather than as individual ideas? I can't say Chase without seeing them. Um, I, I think that several products that seem like they would go well together. I can't say without seeing it. Usually it's a good idea just to pitch one idea. Once they say no to that, which most companies will, you only need one to say yes. And you say, oh, no problem. Thank you. Maybe ask for some feedback. Are you open to more ideas? And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. And then you send them more ideas. It's usually good not to overwhelm them with multiple. But if it's kind of like they make sense and they work well together, it might make sense to send together. I can't say without looking at it. That's the type of thing a coach can help with. Um, I don't think you would kill it more than likely. I don't know what you're sending. Um, when I see our fans making sell sheets, um, I'll just be honest with you guys. When I see, and we've had some contests, different things where you send sell sheets, it's pretty bad. Um, a lot of you think your marketing presentations is good and they're just terrible. I mean, like I would say 90% of the sell sheets I see from non, maybe fans or non-fans of ours, when they send it on over, it it's not good enough. It's not. Some of them, they're okay. I'll put maybe like 8%. They're okay. But you don't want okay. You want to be like, oh, I get it right away kind of thing. And most of your sell sheets, guys, are not, I get it right away. They're making me think. And basically, your sell sheet needs to be good enough where when the marketing manager sees it, they look at it. Within six seconds, they say, oh, yeah, our customer would, would want that. If they, now, maybe they maybe not say want that, but our customer would get that within like six seconds. And if you're not accomplishing that and you're make, they're having to think, you have to assume that marketing manager is basically brain dead. Assume they're brain dead and they're just glancing at it, giving it next to no effort. And if they're still going to understand your product, then it's good enough. And most of your guys' sell sheets are not that good. When our coaches guide our students to do, do sell sheets that good, and then our design studio makes it pretty. So with that said, I've seen a few that were good enough. I've seen maybe about 10% are okay. But a lot of them are just like, whoa, this isn't even in the ballpark. Um, and and it's, you'd be surprised. Sometimes it's from um, people with a marketing background. They'd probably do a good job on the marketing if it wasn't their own product. Because their own product, they kind of have blinders on. And they're marketing professionals for a living. And I'm like, this isn't cutting it. Um, so... Really, uh, do your. I'll give you guys a free test that you can do. Um, if you get your cell sheet on your laptop, so it's a PDF, and you put it on your laptop, or it could be on your computer. Set a friend or family member. They could be super critical, or they could be um, super friendly and just like everything you do. It doesn't really matter for this test. You can't have said anything to them about the invention ever before. That's that's what you can't do. And so if it's on your desktop, stand behind the desktop, pull it up. If it's on the laptop, spin it around on the table and look at their face. Say nothing. If they ask you questions, say nothing. And look at their face to see if they're confused. Maybe they're verbalizing it. Well, yeah, so I think it's this. And if, if they're not able to get it really quickly, your sell sheet's not good enough. So that's a free test you guys can do on your own. But don't you can't show it to anybody that you've ever talked to about it before. And you can't, you don't explain anything. You just let them continue to be confused or they're like, Oh yeah, that's cool. And, and maybe you say, so tell me about what, what does it, what does it do? And they, they explain it right away. And you're like, Oh, they get it right away. Or they explain it. And they're like, and you're like, Hmm, no, they're way off. Okay. I need to improve it. So that's, that's something that you guys can do. Um, and even if you're a marketing professional, I suggest you do that. Something you can do with friends and family, you know, um, too, even if they're super critical or super friendly, it still works because you're looking at the confusion on their face and understanding it. Um, so there's a little fun little tip there. Um, uh, my says when an inventor is from outside the U S do you recommend following a U filing in the U S and calling U S companies? So no, I recommend filing a U.S. provisional patent, me, and calling all sorts of companies. But most of them are going to be U.S., Canadian, European companies where you're going to focus. Um, licensing to a company like a Chinese company, that's they don't usually have distribution 
in the stores where you want to be anyway. So they're not a potential licensee. Yes, there's a U.S. company. They get it made in China, but they're the manufacturer and the brand and they're marketing it. And they maybe have a captive factory or a contract manufacturing factory in China. That doesn't mean you contact the Chinese company. You contact the American company with the brand. So you, me being outside of the U.S., me is your name, or Mimi, I guess it is, um, you are going to file a U.S. provisional patent application. And because the U.S. is part of what's called a patent cooperation treaty, in a roundabout way, it's kind of preserving your space in all the other PCT patent cooperation treaty countries as well to file in those countries. And it's fairly unlikely a deal is going to happen um, outside the U.S., Canada, or Europe anyway. Um, so, but yeah, I would approach companies in the U.S. and and in other countries, in Asian countries, I wouldn't really bother, to be honest with you. Um, I would focus on U.S., Canada, and Europe. Um, Chase says, several of my products are, we've got about 14 minutes left. Let me take a sip of water here. Several of my products are outdoor fair weather toys. When is the best time to pitch these ideas? Can pitching at the wrong time kill an idea? It absolutely won't kill an idea, Chase, and you can just repitch it later in the year. I would just start pitching it to those companies. And when you get no's, you've established a relationship by showing them your first product, and then you ask them how they work after that. So when you pitch, and then they aren't interested in a particular idea, because like I said, you pitch 30 companies and three show interest, 27 don't. So most of your interaction is going to be the ones saying that they're not interested, which is normal. It shows you're working on your project. And so you, you, you ask them, you know, is there a particular time? And they might say, and every company might be different. Uh, now, any time of the year is good, but eh, not like the months before we typically go to this trade show or they might say certain things and every company will be different. And in some, you might be in an industry for a while and you're like, you know, like the month when trade shows aren't happening right now, so that's not a problem. But the month before this, let's say it's a pet product. The month before Super Zoo in Las Vegas, I found that people aren't very responsive. They're busy getting ready for, ready for the show. So I've found not to show that time, but they might say those sort of things. So just ask them. And your opportunity to ask them is not before you show. It will not kill or mess up your deal or your chances. It's not like you, you couldn't show it again at some point if they're like, if they say, well, you know, we're really not looking at ideas right now. Show them this particular time of the year. Just ask. Just ask. Um, Michael said, Andrew is a good man. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. Um, I talked to two people. I think I was talking to them on LinkedIn today where they were just uh, saying thank you for this live stream show. So I really appreciate you guys saying that. It keeps me wanting to do it. Um, I don't need like endless pat on the backs, but a few is nice that you know you guys know that i know that you feel and appreciate um what i'm trying to do for you guys um uh oh i can't pronounce this name wholesale wholesale is it necessary to travel to the usa if you want a licensing idea absolutely freaking not it's absolutely not necessary they don't care where you're from. We've had students in 65 countries. I remember I had this one student. She was on a French Polynesian island. and the population of the whole island was like 2,000 people. They don't care. Do not limit yourself to your geography. You can license living anywhere in the world. Um, okay. Jazzy says, can you explain what not signing a contract in my name means? Um, what is an LLC? So when you do your first deal, it's not good that you do your, like my name's Andrew Krause. I wouldn't do it under Andrew uh, Krause. I wouldn't do the contract, the licensing contract under Andrew Krause. I would do an LLC, maybe Andrew Krause Designs, and I would make the contract with the company under Andrew Krause Designs. So if some uh, consumer gets hurt with the product, and they wanted to sue me, which I can't think that they would want to, but it's a possibility. They would sue the LLC and I would be emptying the money out every month from it. So there wouldn't be anything in there for them to get to. So it limits your personal liability. But again, when I shared earlier, when you do a deal, you're coming under their product liability insurance. They don't know you exist. They're going to sue the company, not you. But if they did want to sue you, you've got that additional measure of protection. It's what's called an LLC, a limited liability company. 
you can look it up. And there's different versions of that, different countries. I also shared with the fact that some of you, if you're overseas, a U.S. consumer is not going to want to sue you if you're overseas. It's too expensive, and that'd be too unwieldy. And so that's an additional measure of protection. In the 20 years we've been doing this, we've never had one of our students get sued by a consumer or the company that they're that they licensed the product to. It's never happened. And we've had students do pretty high liability stuff like ladders and things where they, people could get hurt. So I would personally feel very safe if I was working on a high liability product, um, if I was covered all those different ways. I wouldn't hesitate personally. But consult your attorney and um, before you take any action at all. Um, Jazzy also says, can your coaching help with business terms and licensing contracts? Yeah. So we, we guide our students through the entire licensing contract. Our negotiation coach, Paul, will guide you and will tell you what to say back to the company and them and their attorney will change. It'll go back and forth, back and forth. Before you sign it, though, when it's like 95% done, we'll recommend for you to have a licensing attorney dot the I's and cross T's before you sign it. But there's no risk in going back and forth. And we save our students a tremendous amount of money. We save our students from licensing attorneys killing the deal. So we definitely help our students through licensing contracts and not just the terms, Jazzy, but the whole back and forth and how that works. Most of the assumptions people make with how to go back and forth with this big company is wrong. Like most of the time, very wrong um, in what you think you should do. A lot, co most common thing is people think they should pit companies against each other. It's the stupidest thing you could possibly do. Because we'll get students that have interest from two, three companies. Oh, should I pit them against each other? Hell no. Um, it's very rare you, 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 you would want to do that. That's just one crude example. But um, So uh, Debbie has a good question. If a company pays for your patent, do they own your idea? You absolutely, when you do a licensing deal, you never sell your idea. You rent or you lease it. If they don't perform it, they're not selling so much every quarter. You get it back. Other terms, many other terms in the contract give you the right to take it back. You're renting or you're leasing it. So when you get them to pay for the patent, you file a $70 provisional, right? Low risk, smart way to do it, invent right way to do it. And if you can get them to give you an advance on royalties or just give you the money, you're going to take that money and you are going to file the full utility patent and reference the provisional. They are not going to do it, and you do not want it under their name. So it makes it very easy. So the patent will always be under your name, and the licensing contract is giving them the rights to sell your product, providing they meet these certain criteria. So if the patent's in your name, you literally only need to send them a letter saying they're not meeting the contract terms, and you're rescinding the contract and then you don't need to get them to reassign the patent to your name because the patent was under their name. That's a freaking mess. You don't want to do that. You always want the, the patent to be under your, your name. So that's a really good question. I think that was from Debbie. Um, uh, Michael says, what if you had a PPA and a big company took your idea? Well, we've never had that happen in 20 years, Michael. It could happen but it hasn't yet. And I think a big reason why is our students conduct themselves professionally. So when you're doing and saying all the right things via email and via the phone, that three or 4% of companies that might knock you off, they don't want to mess with you. So let's say you're talking to Sally and she's a marketing manager and meh, her boss, Bob, he's kind of an unethical CEO. And she says, Bob, I think this invention from this inventor is really cool. I think we should license this. And Bob's like, oh, Sally, why should we pay this guy? Oh, we should just go around him and do it ourselves. And Sally might say, well, Bob, he's not like that wacky inventor from a year ago. Didn't know what he was doing. Um, he's conducting himself professionally via email, everything he's sending. This guy knows what he's doing. I think it's a liability to knock him off. And so I can't guarantee you guys that that conversation has happened. But the fact that it hasn't happened to one of our students in 20 years, it says a lot on the way you conduct yourself. Because I talk to inventors that, when they tell me what happened, they act really, they acted really wacky. These aren't fans of ours. Like they did something a while back and they shared it with me. And I'm like, wow, that was really stupid stuff to do. And they pissed the company off. And just you pissed the company off does not give them the right to take your idea. But they got them all wrapped up in the project. And then I'll give you an example. Then they asked for a half a million up front. So the, the company got wrapped up in the project. They're doing all this stuff. They're getting it moving forward. The company didn't interview the inventor to make sure they're wacky. 
And once they finally did, they realized this inventor is a nut job and asking for a half million dollars up front and isn't going to budge. And the inventor is like, I don't see what their problem was. This is a great idea. It's a million dollar idea. I'm like, who the hell do you think you are? You're, who told you that was the right thing to do? So I've talked to inventors where they've done that sort of thing. But when you don't do that sort of thing and you get somebody that's a little unethical because they're out there, they don't want to mess with you. You know, and so in this fictitious scenario, Sally's like, ah, Bob, I think we should license it, pay him the royalty or move on. I don't think it's worth it. And Bob's like, he either says to move on or he's like, okay, fine. You know, um, so that's just a little funny, little fictitious scenario. But hopefully that was that was helpful. Um, so answer your question, Michael, it could happen. But you, you can also go spend 10 grand on a patent every time you get an idea, sit around waiting one to three years for it to issue so you can say patent issued and then try to license. But that's pretty freaking stupid that 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 you're you're going to rip yourself off out of your own fear by not being more prolific and showing a bunch of ideas, filing a $70 provisional. That is not the proper path to take to be successful and monetize your ideas. That's the path attorneys will have you take. But you ask them if they've licensed a product before, and I've never met an, a patent attorney that's ever licensed a product before. Maybe a few of them have. So why are you getting business advice from them on that, right? Um, let's see. Um, okay. So AJ says, should I show my PPA to a company I'm negotiating with? They asked to see it in my second meeting. Um, you never should show it up front because it just doesn't move it forward. Some people think, oh, yeah, you, we don't want to see it, Andrew, because then they'll try to work around me. No, it's not the reason why. The reason why is it doesn't move it forward to send them your patent or your prototype. Getting on the phone and talking with them and realizing them realizing you're a real person and creating some rapport, some sort of relationship, get them talking about their project. So now it's just your project. Now it's our project kind of, and you're getting them wrapped up in it. That's the reason why it's important. Now, um, AJ is saying this is the second meeting. So maybe AJ already did that. So at some point it might be appropriate to send them your provisional patent application, but you need to have gotten all this information out of them first and move it forward. If you just give them what they're asking for, then they just kind of go away and you don't have this bait to get all the important critical information you need. So the big question is, AJ, did you get everything out of them on that first call? My guess is no in order to move the deal forward. You probably don't know what that is. You need to get out of them in order to move it forward. So um, it, it might be okay to send it, but you might use it as leverage to further get more information. Yeah, I'd be happy to share that a little bit later, but I want I need some more questions answered first, you know, that sort of thing. Um, there's a lot of little tricks there too you can use. Um, well, Saeed said, how, how can I measure the effectiveness of my sell sheet before... Um, showing them to a company. And I, I gave you the laptop test where you, you put it on your laptop, you spin it around, you just look at their face and they've never seen the product before and you don't say anything, you don't explain it to them and you see if they can explain it to you and you see how quickly they get it just by the look on their face. So that's a great, really simple technique that you can use. Um, let's see. Uh, the burnout, because I don't have your real name. I'm pitching three companies on my sporting good idea. Go for more or is three actively good enough? No, three sucks, dude. Three sucks. Um, especially on a sporting good product, for most products, you should have 20 or 30. So that you need more. You definitely need more. Um, Craig said, I have a product for beehives or a special product like that. What is the best method to finding companies that are open to outside ideas when place when places like Walmart don't sell the stuff? So, yeah, you have to figure out where uh, people buy uh, beehives, and that shouldn't be that hard to figure out. And so in, in your, your retailer isn't a Walmart or a Target. It's probably some online um, retailer that's selling bee-related products and beehive and beekeeper-related products. Um, I hear it's kind of popular. I think individuals are doing a lot of that now with beehives. It's kind of fun. I love honey. So that's it kind of makes me want to do it. But I, got, I, I don't have enough time for the hobbies that I do have. Uh, so 
uh, you got to figure out where those retailers are and then your licensees are selling at those retailers. So, uh, you know, we can't go into all the specifics, but you should be able to figure that out, Craig. Um, Spencer says, should I do this or first do a free consult to see if licensing is better for the product than venturing? So that, I like that you're asking that question that way, Spencer, because it's not what's right for the product. It should really be what's right for you. So if you've got an 80-hour-a-week job, if you've got two jobs, if you've got a couple kids, if you're super busy, you're not starting your own business. You can't, you can't start a business with four hours a week and sell a product yourself. You can have a website nobody visits. You know, you could put it up a few places, but that's not what most people intend for their product. So when you license, I always joke, you can have delusions of grandeur and you're not delusional because that big company could sell half a million units, 50,000 units, 10,000 units, depends on the product, right? And that's not craziness. And they have unlimited money and they have the workforce and you can have a full-time job or another business and you can license products. So it's not just what's right for the invention, it's what's right for you. But yeah, Spencer, go on InventRight, click on the contact us page, book an appointment with us. And we could talk about the product and specifically if there are any issues with licensing it specifically. Because there are some products that aren't right for, for licensing. Um, but most products, if there's a company selling it and there's an existing distribution channel, it can be licensed. You don't want to have to start a whole new business. They're tapping into all the retailers they're in, their existing manufacturing, all that. Okay. So let's see else what else we got here. We got a few. Well, we went over actually. Um, okay, Ida said, hi, Andrew, just wanting to say hi. I have my second coaching meetings with, um, and Lee is awesome. We don't have a, uh, a coach named Lee, but maybe you mean less, but you have a coach, obviously, so it doesn't matter. Um, I really think coaching is the best startup for me and my products. Thanks again to you and Stephen Keith. It really keeps you on track, Ida. But um, I love doing these Q&As for those of you that aren't ready for that or just want to get some some advice over and above our, our YouTube show. So, um, but uh, there you go. Ida believes it's worth it. So she's not a plant. This, all this is very natural. And I know you guys were asking questions at the beginning about the programs, and I try not to do that too much. But, you know, I answered at our q and I can talk a little bit about it. I think that's cool. Um, if you don't think it is, please let me know. Uh, uh, Jacob says, uh, let's say, okay, let's say I join InventRight and I need it again in the future. Is there a discount of price? Yeah, it's huge. Um, so we discount, and this is as of, today. It might change in the future. If you want to join for another six months, continuously, eight years later, wherever, um, it's like $1,300 less. And then if people join for a third term, it's even less than that, which is really us just like almost breaking even. So we really are very supportive of our past students. You get a huge discount for coming back a second term. But the goal is you get enough experience. You say, I get it, guys. I went through this for half a year. I, you know, if I get it over my head, I can come back and we're, you're always there for me. But I, I can license products the rest of my life now. So the goal is you get enough real life experience during that year. You can license um, for the rest of your life. So I think that uh, we came up. Um, okay. Thank you, Dana. Dana says I'm the best. I always like being the best. That's great. That's cool. I think our coaches are the best. Our coaches are amazing. I'm very proud of our coaches. I used to be our head coach in charge of all our coaches. And then um, Terry O'Mara became our head coach. And he does an amazing job. And Terry, our head coach, meets with all our coaches twice a, twice a week. All our coaches are um, they're all employees. Nobody's a contractor. So they're all completely and totally accountable to us. And um, Susan, the cost for a PPA is 75 last time I checked. And Philip, thank you for saying that I rock. I appreciate that. Uh, Dong, thanks for the thank you. Ida, 
Um, Les, okay, your coach is Les. Yeah, he's he's great. He's he's got a lot of energy. I love Les. He's fantastic. Um, okay, cool. So we're gonna call it a night. Um, I'm gonna come back next Monday and do this again. Make sure to watch some of our YouTube show. Um, if you haven't, check out our uh, coaching programs. Go to inventright.com and click on coaching. Um, we do have. So if you're watching this in the future, um, realize this is something that we literally never done before. If you order our one-on-one coaching before October 31st. We give you two extra months, not one. We've done one before. We've never done two. So you get eight months instead of six. And that's before October 31st, 2020. So you got like five days. So I'm not pitching you guys. It's just something that's going on. So if some of you were thinking about it, you probably appreciate that I let you know about that. Um, So I got to go. Sorry, Benjamin. I know I said, no, don't go. But I've been here an hour and five minutes. And um, I do have to get going, guys. So I remind everybody to take care, keep inventing, um, coming up with ideas. It just happened to you one day for most of you, became part of who you are. So make the effort to do the boring business stuff that you have to do to get your product out there. You have to go beyond just coming up with ideas, spending money on patents and prototypes. And that's what we're all about, teaching you to go beyond patents and prototypes and reach out to companies. So I remind everybody to take care. And keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you guys next time. See you guys. Bye.